verses 1 through 13, welcoming those visiting with us, welcoming family and friends here for the baptism as well. We continue in our sermon series today in the book of Matthew. Hear now the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. It was 1517, over 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther started a protest that turned into a worldwide movement. Even though he was a monk, Luther hated the God of the Bible. In his day and age, much like ours, there were very few people who actually read the Bible, R.C. Sproul says. But Luther began to read Scripture and to wonder, well, how can my evil, my own sin, be dealt with? He discovered he couldn't fix the problem. He had to rely on the finished work of Christ alone. The Protestant Reformation, loved ones, was about two things. Who can say what's true and how to reconcile who we are with who God is? It recognized God's Word as the ultimate authority in this world and the perfect life, sacrificial, and substitutionary death of Christ and resurrection as the only answer for evil and the only basis on which we, by faith alone, can stand before a holy God. The Christian life is gospel-grounded, founded on the sovereign grace and love of God in Christ, lived out in gratitude as Disciples who bear our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. That's where we left off last week. We now see what this Jesus, who said he would suffer and die, what he is like in his glory, 
Do you notice the contrast between suffering and glory from last week to today? The glory of Christ is beyond what we can imagine. And we see that first as Jesus is transfigured. What we have here is six days after Jesus is with those disciples when Peter confesses that he is the Christ. Do you remember that? Now, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. We don't know what mountain, but they're there, and a reminder as they're there that God often in the Bible reveals himself to his people on mountains. Elijah, Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. Elijah again on Mount Horeb. Or in particular, kids, does this scene come to your mind today? Moses receiving the law in Exodus 24. How many people did Moses take up with him on the mountain in addition to the 70 elders? Three. Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron. They are there for six days. On the seventh day, Moses with Joshua goes up further and a thick cloud covers the mountain. The parallels here are striking. Jesus with three disciples, six days after the previous event, on that mountain with a cloud coming, it's telling us that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. It's giving you a scene of glory that is indescribable. No human words can fully comprehend what is here. The word transfigured, do you see that, kids? It's a word that we use to talk of maybe a tadpole becoming a frog. (laughs) But that's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't changing. He's not becoming something he wasn't. What is altered is the way he looks. His clothes now are radiant, more white than any laundry could ever cause a clothes to be cleaned. His face shines brighter than the sun. As one person says, the sun will burn out our eyes from 92 million miles away. And many people expect to casually stroll into the presence of its creator. The radiant brilliance of Christ's glory reminds us of Daniel 7, the ancient of days. The clothing white as snow, the hair white like wool. Jesus is the one who is described in amazing glory, who is the transcendent Son of God, the one through whom all things were created. The Bible says in Psalm 104 that he wraps himself in light, God does, as with a garment. 1 John says God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He created light. When it says he's light, it means no shade, no speck, no sin, no defect, no blemish, but perfect holiness, glory, majesty, beauty, and majesty and holiness. God himself is unapproachable in his light. Jesus' own glory as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is seen here. A glory that has been hidden in his earthly life. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, there's nothing in his human nature that would have made people say, that's God walking down the street. In fact, he would walk in a crowd and nobody would know that he was the eternal Son of God in the flesh. He had no outward form of majesty, Isaiah 53, 
that we should look at him in his human nature. He wasn't a superhuman. He wasn't physically attractive in the sense that people were just drawn to him. He didn't have radiant beams shining from his face walking around. But here in this moment, his appearance is altered. Moses' face, when he came down after receiving the law of God, do you remember, kids? It reflected God's glory, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But this is a radiance of God's glory, like the sun itself produces brilliant light, an internal inherent glory in the Son of God. We beheld his glory, John 1. Glory is of the only begotten Son of God. It is a glory from the past, present, and future, as one person puts it. John 17, Father, glorify me with you with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Past glory. Present glory. There is a heavenly world, loved ones, hidden from our sight right now, that is not only concurrent with this world, but before it and beyond it. And the veil between heaven and earth is pulled back here in this scene for a moment. There are only a handful of testimonies in the Bible of the glory of heaven. Do you know that? People write books about it. They make movies about it. But none of those are true. Because none of those our scriptural revelation that we see here in this passage. And think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah before the throne of God, high and lifted up. Or Ezekiel in the vision of the new heavens and new earth. Or Stephen gazing into heaven before he's about to die at the glory of the Son of God. Or John in Revelation standing there and seeing Christ on the throne. Or Paul who's caught up to the third heaven saying he saw things that he's not able to write down and explain to us. Past glory, present glory. This is a picture of future glory. This is a glimpse of what one day will be Jesus in his future resurrection body. The disciples see something here that you as a believer will see if you trust Christ when you die. One of our dear members may see the Lord soon. You and I may see the Lord soon. When you die, Christian, you will see the glory of Jesus by sight. This is a picture of that. Christ in his glory. Second, Moses and Elijah appear. We don't know how they knew this was Moses and Elijah. They didn't have name tags or something on their forehead. We don't know how this happened. That these men who had been dead, and not, not dead, but with the Lord for centuries are coming. This tells us they weren't dead. Isn't that amazing? It tells us they were very much alive. Kept in the hands of God, which you will be when you die, earthly speaking, go to be with the Lord too. They have a relationship with God and each other in glory. Moses, in some ways, represents God's law. He died, and he never set foot in the promised land, earthly speaking. Isn't that interesting? But here he comes from the heavenly promised land, and he really has no interest in the earthly promised land. Isn't that an interesting side note? That's not his interest here. 
He represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Elijah, who had received revelation on Horeb, who was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot, who never died, who was promised to come in Malachi 4, and who did come in the person of John the Baptist. They are coming to say it's all about Christ. The law, the prophets, they testify of him. They point to him. Moses has been gone for 1,500 years. Elijah for 900. And they start to talk with Jesus. We don't know what they talked about word for word, but Luke's gospel tells us a little bit. Luke 9, 31 tells us they talked of Jesus' departure. Or the word literally means exodus. The three of them are speaking of Christ who has come through his promised death and resurrection to deliver us from slavery to sin and death and bring us to himself as the greater Moses. As Israel children was brought from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Now there will be a true exodus by the shedding of Jesus' blood. Luke tells us that while those three are talking, the disciples were sleeping. Kids, have you ever fallen asleep and you wake up and you hear maybe your siblings or parents talking and you wish, I would have heard that. The disciples probably really wish they had not fallen asleep at this point. What a conversation. But Luke tells us they woke up and behold, they saw his glory. This might be part of what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 16, 28. Some standing there who would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's a very hard verse. The disciples saw his glory here. That verse also may refer to his resurrection, his ascension. Perhaps in a broader sense, his kingly reign after his resurrection in a number of ways. Moses and Elijah are about to leave. Peter, and this is almost humorous, and you maybe can recognize yourself, or I can recognize myself here, Peter opens his mouth. Peter has had quite a roller coaster of a few days. Children, have you ever been to Valley Fair? You're up, 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 up on the wild thing, and down you crash. Well, the Christian life in some ways is ups and downs, isn't it? For all of us. Peter confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now Peter, who is terrified, Mark tells us he's so afraid, he just starts talking. Some of us are like that. Some of us are nervous and we just start talking. Others don't, but you can see what's going on here. He doesn't even know what he's saying, Mark tells us. He's stammering, he's babbling. He's in the presence of God. If ever there's a time to be quiet, this is it. As one person says, part of the problem with the church today is that we have a a helium type of God. An airy God, a small God. Not a, a majestic or awesome or transcendent God. If you asked a lot of people what they thought of church, they would say, well, I hope I'm entertained I hope I don't fall asleep. I hope the pastor's not boring. I'm thinking about what time the football game starts. Our lives are so filled with the world that we often cannot see and taste the goodness of God in his word. And that can be true of a pastor as well. 
We need the Holy Spirit. Peter is terrified. He says, let's honor the three of you, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Let's build some shelters, kids. Do you ever build forts outside? He's literally referring to booths, which would go back to the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths, those shelters that the people of God lived in. The word he uses here is the word for tabernacle. And if Jesus had said to Peter, good idea, there would have been a horrible heresy taking place. Why? Because it would have been Jesus, Peter, uh, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses on the same level. Each of you, three gods. No, not at all. Jesus is the only true son of God here. Peter's mistaken. He struggles like we do. Peter also is mistaken in terms of his understanding of glory. In some way, he thinks this is it. He doesn't understand that this is a type and a shadow of what is to come. That for this glory to be fully revealed one day, Jesus has to go to the cross. There has to be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. He has to suffer in Jerusalem. It's the plan of God. Do you notice in the text that Jesus doesn't even answer Peter? No answer. But there is an answer coming. Third, the glory of Christ as the Father speaks. Peter is stammering, and as he's doing so, a cloud is coming down on the mountain. We love to hike and go to national parks. This last year we were in Glacier in Montana. A couple of our boys and I went up to one of the glaciers. It was a beautiful day, and all of a sudden a cloud comes over that mountain. And you know what comes next. We are drenched. We're trying to get down as fast as we can. So you've seen clouds come and go. This is no ordinary cloud. This is not a weather cloud. This is not a rain cloud. This is the visible presence of the glory of God. The cloud of glory that was guiding the people of Israel in the days of the Exodus, in the wilderness wanderings. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. This is the cloud that Moses himself saw as he's on the mountain. And when Moses descends from the mountain, his face is glowing, and that glory cloud of God goes into the tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle in its design. And the glory of God goes into the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would go to make atonement for the sins of the people. This is the glory of God in the tabernacle that was in the temple in Solomon's day. 950 B.C., 2 Chronicles 7. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Because of our sinful nature, our hearts, which are idol factories, begin to produce all sorts of idols. That's what happened in Israel's day. They began to create idols. Idols that were painted on the walls of the temple in Ezekiel's day, 600 B.C. And in Ezekiel 10, you have one of the most unforgettable chapters in the Bible. When four cherubim are assembled in the temple, these are angels, kids, with wings and faces. 
They could go any way without turning. Beneath each one is a wheel full of eyes. Above them stood the glory of God. The cloud filled the inner court of the temple. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the threshold. And it stood over the cherubim. And the glory departed from the temple of God. That's this glory cloud. It was gone. For 600 years, it was not seen in Israel. Until one night, when a baby is born in Bethlehem, and there are shepherds keeping watch over their fields, the angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The glory of the Son of God, full of grace and truth. For the 30-plus years of Jesus' earthly life, the glory is veiled. But now the glory cloud, which overshadowed Mary when, she gave, when, when the, the, the announcement was given by the angel that she would give birth to the Messiah, that glory cloud is here. The word glory means heavy, weighty. The disciples are terrified. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah enter the cloud. And in the climactic moment of this entire narrative, God the Father speaks. And he answers the question that has been on many people's minds throughout the gospel. Who is this man? Herod wondered it. The crowds wondered it. The disciples wondered it. God the Father answers it. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The voice is to encourage Jesus. The father has loved his son from before the creation of the world. The father whose very being has been about loving his son, pouring out the spirit of love and life upon him. Here is the father encouraging his son for the work that is before him. Just like at Jesus' baptism, the same word from the Father. This is the beloved. This is the servant of God. This is the promised Messiah. This is God in the flesh. He is not just a prophet. He is the focus of the scriptures. He is here to do what the Father has sent him to do. He will accomplish the salvation of his people. He will suffer and die in our place. He will rise again. Listen to him. The Father speaks for the disciples themselves. This passage, it's full of the Old Testament, fulfills Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses told the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must what? Listen to him. Here is the prophet greater than Moses, Jesus Christ in the flesh. The disciples are filled with fear, as everyone is who has any encounter with the glory of God in the Bible. They're terrified. And what does Jesus do? The God who is transcendent is imminent and near and full of grace. Look at what he does. He comes to them. He touches them. In his compassion, Jesus touches the sick the leper, those that no one would ever have anything to do with. He reaches out to sinners in his kindness. He speaks to them. 
They feared greatly, hearing the Father's voice. Now the Son's voice reassures them, rise, stop being afraid. Christ in his glory. The question is, how do we respond? A moment later, the glory cloud is gone. It maybe is like a chariot. It removes Moses and Elijah from earth back to heaven. We don't understand these things. But Moses and Elijah are gone. They're shadows. They fade away in light of Christ's glory. Here is Jesus and the disciples. They are speechless, as you and I would be. They're soaking it in. They're probably remembering the voice of the Father they just heard. And then verse 9, Jesus, in a very surprising way, as one pastor says, tells them, don't go tell it on the mountain. Keep it under a bushel. Don't talk about this. Why does he say that? It was not his time to die yet. The disciples would have misunderstood the mission of Jesus and what they would have said when it had not been right. Look at verse 10. The disciples realize, we just saw Elijah up here on this mountain. We know about Malachi who said Elijah must come as the forerunner to the Messiah. We know that Elijah will restore all things. Does that happen? Jesus says, yes, it happens. Elijah has come. How did he come? He came as John the Baptist, not reincarnate, not a crass literalism, promise and fulfillment. John is the Elijah to come. And what happened to John? Herod did to John what Ahab wanted to do to Elijah, but didn't. He beheaded him. So John is the Elijah who restores all things? Yes. And what does he have to show for it? His head on a platter. Jesus says, so also will the Son of Man suffer. As John suffered, he will suffer, but much more. You cannot understand the glory of God apart from the cross. As Martin Luther said, there's not a word in the Bible that can be understood apart from the cross. Meaning, we have a crucified Savior that we trust, that we proclaim. He is a glorified Savior as well. But you cannot skip cross and suffering to get to glory. Jesus says to the disciples, trust me, because I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and you're going to be tempted to just abandon all of it. Remember this promise. I will rise. We saw that last week. He will ascend in a glory cloud. He will return. Don't lose sight of that, disciples. And Emmaus Road, the same message comes to us. Whose voice do we listen to? There's all sorts of voices in our culture, in our head, in our hearts. It's one thing to hear and another to listen. Meaning, you can hear with your ears, audibly, there's some noise going on back there. What, what is that? But it's another, Jesus says, by the Spirit, to have ears to hear and to believe and to trust him and to love him and to worship him and to follow him and obey him and to repent and believe. Almost 30 years later, Peter's about to die. 
he writes about this very transfiguration. And he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Meaning, what Peter and the disciples saw that day lasted for a brief moment. What you have, Christian, and I have in the Bible, is something even better. It is the full and trustworthy and authoritative and inerrant and inspired word of God. You have Christ in the word. You have the Spirit accompanying the word. You have God who spoke to you by the word. You have the Son of God in the word in all of his perfections and glory, power and wisdom, love and grace. You have the promise in the word that the eternally beloved Son comes to share with you the very love the Father has lavished on him for all eternity. He brings you into the life that is his. So you're not just forgiven, but you are righteous by faith in the Father's sight as you trust him. You are his children. He is your father. You cry out, Abba, Father. And we plead, God, show us more of Christ. As we read our Bibles, I do not comprehend the glory of Christ. None of us does. God, help me to see that Jesus is more glorious and holy and merciful and compassionate than I could ever imagine. Emmaus Road, listen to him. He may be calling us to repent of a sin today. Listen to his word. Listen to his assurance that he loves you. Listen to his reminder of the command he gives in love, to love God and love each other. As we listen, we are transformed. We become what we behold. We are transformed, same word that's used of the transfiguration, by the renewal of our minds. With unveiled face, 2 Corinthians, we behold the glory of God and we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We become what we worship. This leads us to worship the Lord with joy, with hope, with expectation. Jesus wants you to see his glory. He doesn't want to hide it away. John 17, he says, I want my loved ones that I love to see the glory that I've had with my Father from before the foundation of the world. That's one thing for us to pray together. Emmaus Road, let's pray that each other and our families and our singleness and our relationships as a corporate family would see Christ in his glory. As we worship, as we meet for coffee, as we pray, as we meet and study the Word of God together, as we share life together, we remember what time it is. It's a time of suffering. It's a time to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. What will keep us pressing on in this time of suffering? Christ and his glory. A sense of his greatness. Your trials are great. The providences you may face may be unexpected and may lead you to say, Lord, it's too hard. We cry out, God, help us. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Seasons of life are almost crushing. Help me to live in hope of the gospel. Help me to know what will come. Help me to fix my eyes on the glory that is to come.
And as I do so, help me to love the people I interact with day by day. Here's a practical application from C.S. Lewis on this passage. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you and I would be strongly tempted to worship or a horror and corruption such as we now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we conduct all of our dealings, our marriage, our friendships, our relationships. There are no ordinary people, he says. You and I have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations are mortal. Cultures are mortal. But it is immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit and love. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Dear Christian, this passage reminds us that we will one day be resurrected to be made like Jesus. Your suffering has an end, a goal. It's a guarantee that resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. And he will come in a glorious cloud again. You will meet him in the air in the glory cloud, 1 Thessalonians 4. And so, dear beloved Emmaus Road, you will always be, always be, always be with the Lord. Family of God, let us encourage each other with these words. Amen.